Can you imagine a mother who one second is caring there for you and absorbed in every part of your life? And then the next second, she's making your life a living hell by yelling at you and screaming at you and making your life a living hell. This is what can happen when you have a mother who's suffering from, unfortunately, a mental illness like bipolar disorder. Today's guest breaks us down deeply into her life and the things that she has dealt with because of growing up with a mother who was struggling with a mental disease, a mental illness. I mean, it's difficult to be okay when somebody's going through wild swings and wild episodic swings for days and weeks and months on end. Today's guest wrote a book about her experience growing up with her bipolar mother. This is the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. And now your host, Ari Gunsberg. Please help me welcome Michelle Dickinson. Welcome, Michelle. Ah, thanks for having me. Let's start off. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure, sure. I am 40-something. I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey. I uh, have been working in the pharmaceutical industry for about 19 years. And in February of last year, I released uh, my memoir, which is a capture of my childhood growing up with a bipolar mother. Uh, in an effort to humanize mental health and raise awareness and tell my story from the lens of a child caregiver. In my spare time, I'm a potter, both a teacher and a student learning to be a better pottery wheel thrower. And I just, I love fitness and I love to uh, make a difference in people's lives. Okay, cool. And what exactly about pottery is it that you love? Oh, there's so much. I find it to be like the next generation yoga. I am very relaxed when I throw clay, and it just really brings me a sense of um, centering when I'm throwing clay and creating with my hands. Interesting. What's your favorite type of piece to craft? Um, you know, everything starts with a cylinder. So I would say, um, I guess, large vessels, like really tall, beautiful, elegant vases, because they're hard, but yet they're simple. Interesting. Cool. Mm-hmm. I saw that you're working on getting into the world of public speaking. How's that journey going? It's good. I have been so fortunate since I released my book last year. I've been so fortunate to have opportunities to talk at like uh, local rotary clubs, high schools, different venues within my company, just to talk more about my story. So it's gotten me comfortable. And I'm also, you know, years ago I did Toastmasters and then the whole thing that uh, propelled me to write my book was being on the TEDx J&J stage. So that was where I first told my story and I got some amazing public speaking coaching from a TED coach. 
that really, um, I think, has served me well. And I'm excited to see where this goes. You did TEDx before you wrote your book. I did. I did. I got very connected to wanting to tell my story because of how well received um, my message was from the TED stage. Oh, very interesting. I, I assumed that you had done the TEDx after the book. Okay. Yeah. How did you land that without a book, without a public speaking career per se? How did you end up landing on TEDx? Yeah, we're really lucky at Johnson & Johnson. We actually have a TEDx stage where employees can tell their stories. So there's a vetting process that goes on. I was nominated by a colleague of mine who knew my story before I wrote my book and um, nominated me. And I was uh, considered and then selected. And then they partner you with a professional TED coach. So I had a few months of just incredible coaching there. Wow. You know, the only downside is the content is restricted to internal employees only. So it's not like I can publicly show my TED Talk. That's the only downside. Oh, even the recorded TED Talk you can't publish? Yeah, I can't because it's it's a private license that Johnson & Johnson has with TED. Wow. Have you worked, tried to get onto a new TEDx stage to tell the same story? I need to do that. I would so love to do that. And I need to do that. I just, I've been busy with my book, so I haven't really explored like opportunities to put my name in the hat for, you know, public TED events. You have to focus on one thing at a time. Yeah. And what was it like getting up on the TEDx stage? Nerve wracking, right? Terrifying. (laughs) I come from the corporate world where everything hinges on a PowerPoint slide, right? So Yep. You literally are the content on the stage. There is nothing on the screen unless you want like an image or something. So you really are the storyteller. And it's powerful, but it's also terrifying. Uh, you really have to be comfortable with sharing your message and do it in a way that engages your audience. So, but it was great. It was a tremendous experience. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Are you ready to dive a little deeper? Sure, why not? All right. You mentioned before your book, it's called Breaking Into My Life, that it's a memoir discussing the pains and the triumphs from growing up with a bipolar parent. Right. Now, you do have an excerpt of the book on your website. I do. Have you ever read it out loud? No, (laughs) not out loud. I mean, to myself several times during the editing process. Would you? The whole excerpt? Or a small part of it? I could. Would you like me to? Yes, okay. if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, there's a reason why I chose that as the excerpt for my website. And so here, let me share it with you. So mom has been sick for the last few weeks. Our house has slipped from control into complete chaos. And I've moved from a sense of relief to a sense of burden. When mom began her downward slide, I felt like I'd be able to have a reprieve. For a brief moment, she wasn't watching me and every move that I make, looking for me to mess up. I could breathe again and actually live my life. This freedom, however, is very short-lived. Before I know it, there is a new role for me to play. Morning comes, and I cannot wait to escape to school. It is mentally and emotionally draining to be trapped in a house with someone that is always crying. Today, I have a brand new outfit to wear, and I'm looking forward to seeing the reaction of the kids in my class. Finally, I'm going to look as good as the other seventh graders. A new boy, Wesley, likes me, and I can't wait to see him today. I have to hurry. I'm meeting my friend Katie so that we can walk to school together. I get dressed. I go downstairs. Immediately, I can tell that mom is in an even darker place. 
her mood has been erotic lately. I didn't really think much about it until now. I should have been paying more close attention. I should have seen this coming. During the day when she's not crying, I notice that she's rushing around the house at an incredibly fast pace. She has been very busy doing small things like organizing the catch-all drawer in the kitchen for hours and hours. She hasn't been sleeping at night either. When I get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, she's downstairs in the living room and every light is on and she's crocheting or doing needlepoint wide awake. I wondered how she could go on so many nights without sleeping. This morning, the large red bags below her bloodshot eyes confirmed for me that she was up all night crying once again. The pure sadness on her face overwhelms me. I try to ignore all the all too familiar sense of despair and go about my morning routine. As I make my bowl of cereal for breakfast, I overhear my parents' conversation. Please stay home with me, mom begs my dad with a whimper. I can't stay home today, period. I have a very busy day and an important meeting with my boss, dad replies. Please, she says. She starts to cry. I don't want to be all alone. Dad reluctantly turns to me. He has no other option at this point. Do you want to stay home with your mother today, he asks. I'm already showered, dressed for school. I'm really looking forward to seeing my friends today. Yes, I can stay home, I say. I think about all that I will miss in school, including the assembly that I was really looking forward to and seeing all my friends. All that does, all of that does not matter because mom needs me now and her needs always come first. Michelle will stay home with you today, dad says to mom. I unpack my lunch, put it back in the refrigerator. Oh crap, not again, I say to myself with a sigh. We're headed down that dark road once again. Staying home for most kids is a gift. It's not that for me. I know what this means and I know what's coming. It's incredibly heavy. Yes, (laughs) it is. It is a vivid depiction of how it was though. Can you tell us some more about that time in your life? Yeah, sure. My childhood was different. You know, most kids have, you know, there's stuff that happens in your childhood, but like my entire childhood was like painted by the backdrop that my mother was the priority and her illness was the focal point always. So I always like put my needs on the shelf and whatever we needed to do to rally around her health and well-being to keep peace in the home, just to keep, keep like a safe, peaceful household. We had to do it. That was just what was expected. And it was hard. So, you know, I kept a secret. I kept it as a secret from my friends. I tried hard not to let anyone know because I didn't want them to judge me or tell me my mother was crazy. So, yeah, it was, it was hard. It was a struggle to, you know, just to have a somewhat normal life, I guess. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I had two cousins who lived with us for a short period of time. Uh, But I was an only child. My parents had adopted me when I was probably, what, two years old, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And when your cousins lived with you, did they see everything going on? Yeah. Yeah, they were part of it. So my mom was very abusive. She was physically abusive, emotionally, mentally. And it was just because of her own pain, right? So like those hurt others. I mean, it's it's a reality, unfortunately. Anyone who crossed her path would get her abuse. So they were they were not immune to it by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Can you think of some failures that you recall from that time? 
this is like overall from your mom, from your dad, from you, from your cousins, really anything. And then the next step is what things you felt people did to get past those failures. You mean like my own failures? It could be or failures of your mom. And, you know, like I just want to focus for a second on that period of time and things that you felt like were failures in some way or form. And then the steps that were taken to move past those, if there were any steps taken to move past them. Yeah, I mean, um, I think some of the failures that I can think of is, you know, and I couldn't see them until I was much older, was like, I think my own needs, like I was groomed to put the needs of my mother in the house first before my own. Um, And that shaped me, I think, in a way, in some ways, a positive way, but mostly in a negative way, because it's harder. It has always been a struggle for me to speak my truth and speak my needs and speak my wants because I was trained to not speak up really just to... From a very young age, right? Yeah, to push my my stuff, like what I need aside because God, like the priority is keeping the, the peace in the house. You know, I have been through a lot of therapy, a lot of healing, a lot of self-discovery to try to make myself a priority. But I think that that's also something that a lot of caregivers will experience or have experienced is like really just not making themselves a priority and really making their loved one a priority and then getting lost in that care. Right. Losing themselves in the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Let's look at the flip side of the coin now. From that period of time, do you feel like there were any moments of crazy success? Crazy success. Um doesn't have to be crazy. It could be just regular success, but you know, sounds better sometimes. (laughs) I have to fast forward because like, I couldn't see this at the time. I have to fast forward to the back of my book where I have this epilogue where I highlight how growing up with someone like my mom actually serves me now as an adult, because I don't think I would have gone down the self-discovery road. I definitely wouldn't have come to the point where I wanted to write a book and impact mental illness and, and how we all relate to mental illness. You know, it also helped me have so much compassion and empathy for people. Like I can walk in a room and I feel like I can sense if someone, how they're feeling because I was groomed to pick up the vibe of my mother So I feel like I have a connection in a way that it serves me as an adult to have that much more care, concern, and empathy for others. You're saying that because of all the hardship that you experienced growing up, first of all, you are more in tune to what people are feeling and needing. And second of all, you have launched yourself down a road that will ultimately impact the world in a positive way. Yeah. And yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, that I'm so grateful for because the amount of fulfillment that I get from helping others is like, I can't even express to you how amazing that is for me. That's awesome. Yeah. What you went through is not, it's not no. just to clarify, no. what you went through is not awesome, but, but it led me. But yes, where you have gotten to, that is awesome. That's yeah. inspiring to be real. I have a a colleague that once said to me, from your mess, make your message. And I think that that is really the reality for me, right? I had a messy childhood. And from that, I'm making my own personal message. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. 
I was going to ask what you did to maintain your feeling beyond the moment from when you were a kid, but we weren't talking about a moment when you were a kid. So, you know. <laughs> so let's talk a variation of that question. What do you do on a day-to-day basis to maintain that feeling of success that you gain from helping others and from making a message out of your mess? Um, I just try to remember the bigger picture, right? So I struggle, even though I'm not my, my mother's biological daughter, I struggle with my own bouts of depression. And I think, I think it's because I'm a human being and life has a way of showing up and challenging you and a combination of, you know, life showing up for me over this past year and change happening in my life. And right now in New Jersey, we have gray, dark days. So I deal with seasonal depression and I have a therapist. So I go to my own therapist every few weeks, which is important for me and my own well-being. So I try really hard to take care of my brain health that way by getting the care that I need. And then, you know, I try really hard to work out, but then because exercise, I know like physiology and moving your body that absolutely will help you feel, start to physically and mentally feel better. Yeah. Exercise has been proven to be as effective or more effective than antidepressants. Yep. I believe in fitness as a vehicle, as advice to help you feel better. So I try really hard to make sure that I get my exercise routine in. But then the other thing is, like I said earlier, is like my, the bigger picture for me is I want to make a massive difference in the world because we still have so many people suffering in silence who don't feel comfortable talking about or reaching out for help if they need it. And that's unfortunate because it's robbing them of their joy. And I believe I have this insatiable hunger to make a difference and help people not suffer and have the joy they deserve. So that's really like my North Star, like make a difference, help people impact as many people as you can with your story. Your guiding light. How did you get from where you were, this kid, this teenager at some point, living in a house with a with a mother who was bipolar and abusive and go from there to the point that you are today? where you have this guiding light, you know, I just want to go out and help people. I want to impact the world. What were some of the steps you took on that journey? Yeah. So it's been this evolution and it wasn't like it's something that has always been there. It's truly like unfolded for me one step at a time. Right. So if you go back to, I mean, I write about it in my book, I have a whole uh, section about how I found safety in my Catholic youth group, how my Catholic youth group was the first place where I actually told trusted people to tell them what I was dealing with, with my mom. So having the confidence to tell them, feeling the love and compassion that came back to me, it was the first time I told it. Then, you know, fast forward, I tell my story on the TED stage, this insecure, lack of confidence, young woman standing in front of people bearing my soul and seeing that reaction was like, huh, maybe I do have something I could say. Maybe I do have something worth writing. Wow. Seeing a, a positive reaction of people who are supportive and totally. interested in hearing what you have to say, as opposed to what you thought may happen where people are like making fun of you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so, so then that led me to, okay, I'm going to write a book. Okay. Well, that was a four year journey, very cathartic and emotional. And so then I write the book and then I launched the book last February. And then I get so many messages. It's just so well received. And I'm like, holy crap, I could really make a difference with this. So it's it's like it's like one thing <laughs> after the other it's been great that's really good yeah what are some of the strategies that you used growing up to internalize your love for your mother despite everything hmm yeah you know I had this image of my mom before she had 
been diagnosed with bipolar. I think she probably was first affected by her illness when I was four or five. But I have, I had this memory of her before she was sick and she was just this loving and warm mother. I remember laying on the floor with her and playing dolls with her and she was so caring and nurturing and wasn't abusive or upset or nervous or any of that. So I always held that image of her in my mind. And like when she would go through her mania to her depression, there would be this like little window of time when she would be sort of stable and normal. And I just would would grab onto that. I would grab onto those moments because I knew they were short lived and I would savor them. And I would just like pray that like she would return to that, you know, that afforded me to continue to love her even when she was beating the crap out of me or telling me I was a piece of shit or whatever, you know, because I knew it was her illness. And I had people saying to me, you know, this isn't your mom. This is her illness. This really isn't your mom. Your mom loves you. You said that she was first diagnosed around four or five and then you lived with her for mm-hmm. 10, 12 years after that. At what point did people start realizing that they should have that conversation with you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like I've always, it was probably like my aunt and my grandmother, the two that I confided in whenever okay. we would go to visit. So like we would oftentimes go and visit and my grandmother lived next door to my aunt. And I would remember having conversations, like private conversations with either my aunt or my grandmother, and they'd always check in with me and say, how are you doing? And they would remind me that she loved me and they would remind me that she was just sick, you know, not to, because it's really hard when you're a little kid, you think that, you know, it's you causing your mother's upset. And, And my father, he did the best he could, but he oftentimes would tell me just, if you stop acting up, she won't have a nervous breakdown. And that was hard. That was really hard. Cause I, I thought at times I thought, Oh man, I'm just a rotten kid. If I would not be a rotten kid, she would not have a nervous breakdown. So they would ground me and just be like, your mom is sick and you know, just support her and love her and know that she loves you. Even if she can't show you. I can't even imagine the pressure. Yeah. That was rough. I mean, and I think we have evolved as a society to relate to mental health differently. My dad, did the best he could with what he knew at the time. Yeah. I mean, mental health has been evolving continuously. Every year, it just takes leaps and bounds. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. It's a good thing. We're getting there. Absolutely. How's your mother today? So both of my parents have passed away. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thanks. It gave me, though, the freedom to write this book in a way where I could honor her. Um, but also vividly share those experiences. And I'm not sure she probably wouldn't have been happy with me if, if I had something like this, you know? So it <laughs> kind of gave me the freedom to do it after she I'm saying she didn't know that you ever wrote a book, that you planned on it, anything like that, right? No. Nope. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That certainly probably made it easier. Like you said, to be able to to honor her memory by helping her to be the catalyst for such a tremendous amount of change throughout the nation, throughout the world, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, so that's how I keep her memory alive. To be honest with you, whenever I'm talking about this, I feel like I get to celebrate her life and keep her memory alive and that, you know, that's a good thing. Absolutely. For children who might be living in a similar situation to what you grew up in, what are some strategies that you can recommend to them on how to deal with this? Oh my gosh. So yeah, first of all, the parent that isn't mentally ill, (laughs) 
the parent of the child in that relationship needs to make sure that child's getting the emotional, mental support that they need, whether it's through them or through a therapist. Because the thing that I wish someone would have said to me was that you have no control over how your mother is and how your, how your mother is to you um, isn't a reflection of who you are. It's merely an illness. And, you know, it wasn't until I was probably 25 and I had a friend of mine say, separate your mother from her illness and love your mother for who she is and recognize her behavior as her illness. And I didn't know that, like lump them all together. And I, at times, hated my mother and internalized that I caused her illness. So I think that my advice for children is to know that mental illness doesn't define who the person is and that their actions can be hurtful, but they are no reflection on who you are as a human being, who you are as a person at all. Right. Compartmentalize essentially. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. If I'm paraphrasing and summarizing incorrectly, please correct me. No, you're absolutely right. But, you know, kids can't do that. So the other thing I would say, too, I mean, I found this haven in my youth group, like find a safe friend, find a safe group of kids that you can connect to, that you can share with them how you're feeling if your mom has a bad day and she takes it out on you. Like, right. like have that support. Right. If they're in a religious community, they can try and find a religious youth group. And if they're in a, a non-religious community, then they can look for, I guess, something like the, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, some other type of youth group where people would be supportive. Because not, I mean, unfortunately, not all kids are of course. incredibly supportive for yeah. stuff like this all the time. Exactly. exactly. I feel like many times the more organized groups are going to have a better chance at being supportive for something like this, like the religious ones where there's a religious leader who's saying these are our guiding principles or like the Boy Scout, Girl Scout type organizations where, again, there's there's leaders on top who are saying, no, these are our guiding principles and these are how we live. Right. Do you feel like you addressed strategies that you would recommend to adults who are living with someone suffering from mental illness? Yeah. I mean, I have resources and suggestions on my website for sure. And in my book. Okay. Yeah. But for anyone who's playing the role of a caregiver of someone with mental illness, it is so easy to get lost in their care so much that you give up your own well-being in the process. And it's the old oxygen mask concept on the airplane. You can't help anyone until you help yourself. So having those boundaries in place where you can help your loved one, but also make sure that you're nurturing yourself and caring for yourself. I think the best advice I got from a therapist when I was probably in my 20s was keep a healthy distance between yourself and your loved one if you feel that it's compromising your own well-being because there's no you're not going to do them justice or you if you are, you know, giving up everything that you need to just to care for them. It's so easier to say than to do because you get caught up. And if they need you 24-7, you'll do it. But you got to take care of yourself. You absolutely have to take care of yourself. So that would be my advice. Put yourself first. Try to put yourself first. And, you know, when you do that, you'll be more equipped and more mentally and emotionally strong to be able to support them. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that you just made, that it's not just put yourself first because you should put yourself first to be selfish. It's put yourself first because that will make you more available and more capable of helping them. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What happens when the person simply doesn't want to get help? Yeah. So, and that's hard, right? If they don't want to get help, if they haven't been formally diagnosed. So this is where I would share 
a tool that a dear friend of mine, Zach, created called 18%. It's a free online uh, peer-to-peer community where you can just anonymously log into this community and start to talk about different feelings that you're having, symptoms that you're having, and you can connect with someone who may have experienced what you did in a safe way without having to call a crisis line or look up a doctor and try to find a doctor. You know, just being engaged in the conversation there, I think the biggest and most important thing people can need to do is to keep talking about it or try to talk about it. And I love 18% because it's an incredibly loving and supportive community to just start to, you know, get connected to what really is going on with you. Right. So I did see that you were involved with it. It's not a matter of like somebody get logs on and says, hey, here's what's going on. And then they try to pair them with somebody who knows what they're doing. It's it's more a matter of it's just a giant community. It's like a giant chat room, but very focused on, exactly. hey, we all have these things that come up that we're dealing with. And then somebody pops in and says, hey, this is what I'm going through. And then people may try to help them who either are in the middle of such an episode themselves or are, have dealt with such an episode in the past. Is that how it works? Exactly. Exactly. They recently did a survey too, you know, and you can just go in and observe. You don't even have to engage. And the beautiful part is there's different rooms in the community. So there's one for eating disorder, for depression, even for supporting a loved one, there's family and friend support room. So you can engage in whatever room or conversation you want to have. But but they just did a survey and just people who had never received treatment before had gotten comfortable with the idea of treatment just because of their interactions in that space with other people who said, hey, listen, I was there. I did reach out and get therapy and here's where I am and here's why I would say to try it. So it's great for that. Can't say enough about it. Cool. That's really cool. And you said it was a friend of yours who started up? Yeah, two friends of mine created it out of a loss. He lost a loved one to mental illness and felt compelled to do more to help this community of people, you know, just stay in conversation and, and really connect with one another. And communities can do a lot for each other. Absolutely. Let's touch upon some numbers, some statistics for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mental health by the numbers, if you will. Mm-hmm. Among the documents you sent me that we had exchanged, you sent me a bunch of statistics on mental health globally here in the United States, youths, adults, et cetera. Can you share some of those statistics now? Sure. Um, and it's funny because, you know, 18% that I was just talking about, I mean, it's not funny. 18% was named because 18% of Americans are dealing with a mental illness. I mean, that's how prevalent it is. 18% or 18% undiagnosed? 18% are dealing with some type of mental illness, diagnosed or undiagnosed. Wow. Okay. Um, so if you look at the numbers, about 450 million people across the globe are suffering from mental illness. And the thing that really struck me that is bothersome to me and why I'm on this crusade to really reach youth and really support other organizations that are reaching out to youth is that in 2018, the CDC reported that suicide had increased 25% and is one third and is the third leading cause of death in our youth ages 10 through 24. Oh my gosh. The third leading cause of death in these kids, 10 through 24. I mean, that's frightening. And that is what's at stake if mental health isn't addressed or treated. That is the ultimate. That's the outcome. Sure. 
That is the outcome if we don't do something. Well, the outcome is, right, that or drugs. Oh, yeah, or any other vice, right? Absolutely. I'm not saying that that's absolute, but it is. It's what leads to addiction. It's what leads to self-medicating in whatever kind of way to just um, alleviate the pain. Yeah. What are some things that you feel can be done about this issue and what are some uh, solutions? Do you have any ideas? Um, are you talking about just for kids or? Okay. So I, I was talking about the mental health problem, but it sounds like you're more focused on the youth population. Well, I would, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is remove the stigma and that affects a lot of adults. But when it comes to kids, like we have such a prime opportunity to shape their relationship to brain health. Right. So if you proactively get in there and say, hey, let's talk about the brain like we would talk about any other organ. If you have a problem with your kidney, God forbid, you're going to go and you're going to openly talk about it and get treatment and, you know, get the support you need for that organ. Like, why are we shunning away from openly talking about the brain if you're feeling anxious or you're feeling stressed or you're feeling symptoms of depression, why do we not relate to the brain the same way we relate to any other organ? So that's kind of how and why. That's an interesting way of putting it. I want to get, yeah, I want to get in there to kids and just be like, you know, own your well-being, own how you're feeling emotionally, just like you would physically. By the way, one thing that I'm thinking right now, and I'm sure you've probably thought of it before, but the way you put it, you know, why not think of the brain as any other organ? So when I think of me, my essence, my my identity, my kidneys don't come up there in my head and say, hey, you know, like my kidneys are me, right? And then, but our consciousness, whether it's based on where, you know, our consciousness resides in our head and our brain is in our head and, and you know, our thinking happens in our brain, we all know that, and, you know, so I feel like consciousness and thinking and the brain all essentially merge into one being in our head. And what you're saying is, is, separate the consciousness from the physical aspect of the brain and understand that there are physical things happening in the brain like what might happen in any other organ, which could be potentially affecting your consciousness, your emotional state, your not your identity, but mm-hmm. the way that you act out. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, your well-being. I mean, overall, right? Like your your brain can have an imbalance, right? It's the... I think if you can explain it, like the brain can have an imbalance that needs to be balanced out if you raise your hand and and ask for help. And it might be temporary and it might be, it might not be a big deal, but if you think you can shoulder it on your own, you wouldn't shoulder a broken leg. You wouldn't shoulder a broken arm. You would be like, I need help. I, I need to ask for support. Right. You get help. Yeah. If somebody's having massive stomach issues, they wouldn't be just trying to shoulder it on their own. They'd be going to a doctor and saying, hey, how can we deal with this? What are some options? Exactly. What can we do? Uh-huh. Going back to that 18percent.org, the online community we were talking about just before, do you have any inspiring stories from things you've seen there? I know you're a moderator. I think we forgot to mention that, but you're a moderator for the community, a volunteer moderator. So any inspiring things you've seen? Yeah. I mean, Zach can give you, he's much more connected to all the great feedback that they've gotten, but there's, you know, there's this one person who reached out to him and said, you know, I have been struggling with mental illness for like 20 plus years. And this is like the first space where I feel comfortable openly talking about what I've dealt with. And it's a judgment-free space. People are 
warm. And for someone who has been riddled with a mental illness for 20 years to say that this online community has been a source of support for them, I think that speaks volumes to the integrity of the community, the people who are there genuinely care and want to help each other. It's really great. I mean, as a moderator, I see so many people rallying behind conversations that take place where people just don't feel like they're in a good place. And, you know, people just jump in and say, hey, I've been there. It gets better. Did you work out today? Did you get eight hours of sleep? Did you eat something good? Like, it's really a good space. That's awesome. And then I love that you just brought up that people are bringing them back to the basics because so often in our modern world, we, I'll give you an example. I used to go climbing at the gym like almost every single night of the week and then every once in a while we'd be there and we would not feel as strong you know you'd be going up and trying to climb and your muscles just wouldn't feel like they're working and you're getting tired much quicker and you're like I don't know what's going on I'm just off today and it was like a consistent thing that people that we were there with would turn to each other and it would happen to different people at different times it wasn't always one person that was saying that each person individually would say such a thing and then everybody else would turn around to them and say hey how have you been eating the past few days have you been eating like crap or have you been eating well? And they're like, oh yeah, I've been eating like crap. And it's like, well, that's why you don't feel good. That's why your muscles aren't working properly. That's why. And so now you just brought a lot of these. That's probably a very good point that many of these people who are suffering from some type of mental illness or another, not that the root cause is how they've been treating themselves, but that it's exacerbating it. You know, hey, look, you know, if you're not sleeping properly, it's not, you're not going to feel right. If you're not eating properly, you're not going to feel as close to perfect as you can. If you're not exercising, then, you know, your body is creating a chemical imbalance just from the fact that you're not exercising, which is exacerbating the problem. Yep. So true. It's, there's so many things that are within our control. What you're saying is, you know, one of the things I love to remind people is like, if you have a mental illness, don't feel like you got to relinquish hundred percent control to a physician or to drugs. Like you have such an important role to play in owning your well-being yourself. And those are the things you can control, exercise, sleep, nutrition, like eating crap and sleeping short nights and not moving your body. Those are all things that are going to impact your wellness or your sickness. So it's so important. I mean, and I love that this community reminds people of just the basics and it's not just a pep talk. Oh, think positive. It's literally like, give me a strategy, like what worked for you because I'm struggling. Yeah, that sounds like it's really beneficial for people. Mm-hmm. Another thing I have, I got really curious about when I saw it. I think most of us either understand this intuitively or we take it for granted or it's just so far off of our radar that it doesn't even come up. But it seemed like such a basic question and I realized that for many people, they probably don't think about it. And I feel like you, based on some information that you had sent me, I feel like you have probably contemplated this over and over again. Can you tell all of us what's so important about maintaining self-love, about creating a good sense of self-esteem? Oh, yeah. I mean, so that's something that I always struggled with because I had a mom who wasn't there in my corner reminding me that I could have and do anything I wanted and that I was worthy of my dreams and that I was beautiful. I didn't get any of that. And, And it's so easy to say, hey, love yourself. But like, It is so important to really get connected to your greatness. And because if you can't see your own value, you basically are inviting other people to do the same. So I think something as simple as 
just like looking in the mirror and like reminding yourself, what are those attributes that you're really proud of that are uniquely you that you only can bring to the table, knowing and being present to those, I think are so important because we riddle ourselves with the negative self-talk, right? That will run the show if we're not careful and it will, it will consume us so much that we'll forget who we are, the goodness that we are. I think that that's vital. And I didn't just arrive at this spontaneously. I did a lot of work. I did landmark education. I did their entire curriculum for living where I got present to who I was and what I had to offer. And then I did Tony Robbins. And Tony Robbins is all about recognizing who you are and that you are worthy of everything that you want in your life. And you have the capability to go get it. You just got to get it out of your own way, so to speak. So you know, I can't recommend self-discovery programs like that because they get you connected to what makes your heart sing. You can't recommend or you can recommend? I can't recommend it enough. Enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I don't want people to get confused, you know? Oh, sorry. Yeah. I just get excited. So Landmark Education. So it's Landmark. Um, I don't know their website, but they have like an entire curriculum for living. And then Tony Robbins, of course, everyone knows him. So he's got some programs as well. But Right. You know, you have to get connected to to who you are, what you bring to the table, and what makes your heart sing. So you can have that run the show instead of the negative criticism. The negative self-talk. Absolutely. And I I love what you said before and I just want to repeat it. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but if you don't see the greatness within you, you invite others to not see it as well. And I, I just, I love that because, because it's a good point. You know, the more that you internalize the negative self-talk, the more that you internalize the bad, the more that you're inviting the others around you to see the exact same thing. Because oftentimes what we're feeling on the inside is reflected on the outside. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, right, the more that we practice positive attitudes and positive mental states and positivity, the more that that's what we are reflecting onto the outside, people see that and oftentimes they will reflect it back to us. Obviously, there's those negative people out there that you can't affect change onto, but they are their own. They're their own breed, let's say. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, I mean, they say that how parents talk to their children creates their internal self-dialogue for life. And I knew that that is what happened to me because my mom always said to me negative things like, you're just a kid, you're stupid, you're whatever. And so that was my, that was my default playback in my head whenever I would like screw up, that would come out of my mouth, right? Oh boy. That had to be changed for me to be able to get out of my own way and go for what I, what I wanted to go for, because if you're riddled with self doubt and you're riddled with lack of self love, you're never going to go for your dreams. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Did you have any particular steps that you took? I know you mentioned the education. Are those the main steps that you took to achieve self love and a healthy self esteem? Or are there other steps that you took that you can recommend? All right, I'm still a work in progress. Let me tell you. Are you kidding me? I still struggle with this. It's like, I'm 47 and I still struggle with it. But, uh, I, you just, know what? Honestly, I just did a small interview with somebody about like the whole self love thing and they asked a similar question. And I was like, yeah, um, so about that, I don't know if anybody's really ever arrived there. And if they've said that they did, I don't know if they're telling the truth, you know, because like you said, it's, it's a work in progress, right? Even if somebody's achieved a tremendous amount of self love and self acceptance and, and a healthy self esteem, 
there's still work to do. And I don't even know that I feel like I've achieved that. But, you know, I guess what are some steps that you've taken along your journey towards this goal? Yeah. Well, therapy. I'm not afraid of therapy. I'm not afraid to tell people I'm in therapy. I have an amazing psychiatrist that I go to and we talk about some of the dialogue that I have going on in my head and some of my beliefs that need to be dismantled from my youth. And so we work, we constantly are working on that. But I think, you know, God, Tony Robbins, like I did Unleash the Power Within, where you walk across coals and you start to realize the power of your brain, the power of your brain. You actually walk across hot coals. You actually walk across coals? How hot are they? They're really hot. They're like bright red. <laughs> it's crazy. But Are people walking away with burns there or no? Eh, there's some... There's some thoughts that some people are, but the whole exercise is really around your mind and getting your mind into the right state so that you can walk across the coals without getting burned. So that exercise has you present to how powerful the mind is. And so, you know, I don't want to get into the details of the coals, but that's like the metaphor. So I think that any type of work that has you really start to understand the power of your thoughts, the power of your mind, strengthening your mental uh, toughness or your self-awareness, getting connected to what makes your heart sing, getting honest about the self-dialogue that you have in your mind, like what that is and why you believe that and really understanding what's at the heart of that. That's where Landmark came in for me because I realized the talk that I had was from my youth and from how my mother treated me, but then also what I made that mean. She would say something and I would make it mean something and that would be what I hung on to. So Landmark has you dismantle the meanings that we create along our journey and that with that comes a freedom. So I think, you know, there's all kinds of options out there. You have to find what works and what feels comfortable for you where you're going to get the most out of it. 100%. 100%. Lastly, mm-hmm. thank you very much for coming on. We'll, we'll jump up back onto that in a second. But the last thing that I want to ask you, what do you think is one actionable item, one thing that somebody can do right now to, I was going to try and follow the same theme of the discussion we've just had, but really to take a step forward in any aspect. So I'm leaving it fairly open for yourself, but what's one actionable item you would urge people to do today? to help them on their own path to greatness, on their own path to healing, on their own path to wherever it is they want to go? Mm. Wow. I think, um, I think we have a tendency in society to rush around our lives and say that we're busy and get lost in responsibilities and lost in obligations. And we don't take that moment to pause and really reflect and connect on what brings us joy or look in the mirror and say, I have maybe some unresolved pain from an experience that happened. We stuff it down. We self-medicate, we do whatever and we stuff it down and we don't address it. I would encourage that if you want to go for your goals and your dreams and you want to get out of your own way, you first have to start to get really honest about Maybe some of the thoughts or the experiences that you've had in your life that still to this day, you easily think about. If you easily are thinking about them, they still have you. And it takes courage, but you have to take a step forward in trying to 
get complete with those thoughts and those experiences that, because even if you think they're not impeding you, they are impeding you because you're still thinking about them and and they're taking up brain space that you could be redirecting toward your dreams. Okay. So to summarize and correct me if I'm wrong, but find one item from your past that you're still thinking about that it's still top of mind Mm -hmm. and take a few moments to sit down and work on that item and try to address it so you can let it go and move on. Right. And you may not have the tools to be able to do that. So that's where I would say, look at maybe taking a self-awareness course or, you know, like Landmark or Tony Robbins or getting yourself into therapy for a few sessions. Right. What, what negative could come out of getting into a therapy session for one month? You know what I mean? Like, right. Especially if you walk in there and you're like, listen, I've got this one specific goal. Yeah. I've never been able to move past this particular item in my life. Can we just talk about it and help me move past it? Exactly. If it's in bite sizes and you just break it down and just be like, this is it. God, that's going to help clear a pathway for you to really move into the area that is really what your purpose is. Wow. Okay. Very powerful. Mm -hmm. All right. Terrific. Thank you very much, Michelle, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was really nice to connect and talk to you, Ari. I appreciate it. Yes, this was really eye-opening and and I appreciate all of your internal self that you brought forth for it because I know you're doing this on the day-to-day and trying to increase people's awareness of this, but it's I'm sure there's still some rawness there and I appreciate that you opened up. Oh, of course, of course. That's how we work through it too, right? When we're not afraid to talk about it. Absolutely. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about it with you. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Shelly Eisliger on LinkedIn wrote... Love it, Ari Gunsberg. And my brother, Brian Schulman, has a great story to share, for sure. Hashtag, way to greatness. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button because I want you to learn all about how people traveled on their way to greatness. Thank you for listening to the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. Keep moving on your way to greatness. Join us next week for more stories, inspirations, and interviews to help you achieve the greatness within you.